Starry Voices. Demystifying Zero Trust is a podcast created by Istari, a global cybersecurity platform. At Istari, our mission is to help create a digitally resilient future for the businesses we work with. This podcast series explores the strategy of Zero Trust as a way to help build cyber resilience. Thank you for joining us for episode 101, November 1st, 2021. I'm your host, Don O'Neill. Today, we are joined by John Kindervog of Antwit Technologies to talk about the origins of Zero Trust. Thanks for joining today, John. Can you uh, give a little bit of background about yourself and maybe explain the concept of Zero Trust to the audience today? Yeah, sure. My name is John Kindervog. I am a senior vice president at a company called Ontowit, which does Zero Trust managed services. But prior to that, I did four years as a field CTO at Palo Alto Networks. And then Prior to that, I did eight and a half years at Forrester Research, and that's where I've created this thing called Zero Trust. So it's uh, it started out as a very, very small thing, and now it's become a worldwide movement, and it's totally insane. People told me I was insane when I was creating it, for creating it, and now that uh, so many people are adopting it and it's part of an executive order from the President of the United States, that's insane too. So it's uh, come full circle, and it's insanity, Don. Indeed, it has. You know, what do you think it's taken so long for it to catch on? Well, I don't think it's a long time in comparison to how other technological things get adopted. It takes quite a number of years for an idea to get a few people to go, oh, I see that. And then it has to build some momentum and then it kind of starts to become a de facto way of thinking about things. And so really, the last four or five years, I've seen it just really take off. But when you're just one person at an analyst firm saying something that that sounds pretty crazy to people, yeah, of course, it's going to take a long time for you to give enough speeches and do enough consulting engagements and all that kind of stuff that you start to get some adherence. And then they tell, you know, they tell two people and they tell two people like the old commercials. So, uh, yeah, it, t- it takes time. And and I'm a very patient person. Tell us a little about the whole basic concepts behind Zero Trust. Well, what I realized was there was a, a thing called the trust model, right? The idea that there is trusted and untrusted systems or networks. It goes back a long way. I don't even know how far it goes back. I can't tell when the first idea of trust was injected into digital systems. I can go back to 1984, though, when Ken Thompson, uh, he he won the Turing Award. And Ken Thompson co-created Unix. So back in 1984, he wrote, or he gave a speech at the Turing Award ceremony that was essentially about the problem of trusting trust. And so his statement was, you know, I can only trust code that I've written is is the bottom line. And you can go read that. It's a fascinating thing. But he's already worried about this concept of trust in digital systems. And uh, over the years, I realized that this was the problem. I would talk to people and I can remember to this day uh, where I was talking to a CISO. And I said, well, what's your cybersecurity strategy? And he said, trust but verify. Okay, I get that. I get trust means you're not going to do anything because that's really what it means. Well, as soon as you, uh, you know, have this trust model, you just open everything up. 
And I said, but what are you doing to verify? And he said, well, um, nothing, because if they're trusted users, that would be rude. And I realized he had anthropomorphized the digital world based upon his human experience. And that's what everybody was doing. And so then I said to him, so why are you doing this trust but verify thing anyway? And he says, well, because Ronald Reagan says so. And I was thinking, and I didn't say it, but I thought, oh, that great cybersecurity expert Ronald Reagan, right? Because he was around when the Internet was built, not. And uh, so I, I did research on that. And I realized Ronald Reagan never said trust but ver verify. He was given a speech on a nuclear disarmament treaty with Mikhail Gorbachev. And he said, Mr. Gorbachev, we're going to abide uh, we're going to we're excited about this tree, but we're going to abide by that old Russian proverb and excuse my Russian because I can never get the 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 words right, even though so many people try to help me. Uh, he said, uh, we're going to abide by that old Russian proverb, provenai no provenai, which means trust but verify. And everybody laughed. He was making a joke, but somehow in the cybersecurity industry, we took that as gospel. We, you know, trust but verify is a literal joke. And it's built into systems, right? There's a trust model. You have an untrusted side of a network uh, and a trusted side. Uh, you have trusted interfaces and untrusted interfaces. Uh, and, and you think that you can make people trusted, but there aren't people on the network. You know, there, there are no people on the network. There are only packets on the network, and people are not packets. And so these are the distinctions that I started to understand and realize that trust is actually a dangerous vulnerability. And it's the only vulnerability that is also an exploit at the same time. So the only entity who gets value from trust in your environment are the malicious actors who are going to exploit it. And I think it took me a long time doing it over and over again to really get the messaging right. And once that started to come together so that people could understand it, then they started to adopt it to the point now that there was an executive order uh, issued earlier this year where the where the president of the United States has mandated that all federal government agencies move towards a zero trust model. That's an interesting perspective. Do you think that there could have been something behind the the reasoning of the trust but verify? Perhaps it's an easier concept to grasp for folks versus, you know, the zero trust model, which is all around authenticating and authorizing everything prior to giving access? Yeah, I think the words trust were arbitrarily chosen. Uh, it's a word that people throw around a lot, and it can mean different things. And you can, no one knows what it means. Try to define trust. It's really hard to define. And so you have people trying to define it over history. It has a lot of philosophical connotations. It has religious connotations. Um it, it has uh, Morton Deutsch, who was a, a thinker about how people work, workflow management guy. In 1958, I think he defined trust as one person's willingness to be vulnerable to another person. And I didn't discover that article until long after I had talked about trust being a vulnerability. And so it was very interesting that Morton Deutsch was thinking along those same lines. But I've always said trust is is a way to articulate some level of confidence, but trust is binary and confidence is a thing you can measure. So I will substitute the word confidence 
when other people want to use the word trust because trust is binary. As soon as I say, well, I don't, I don't trust Don so much anymore. Well, then I don't trust him at all. Right. I mean, I just, I, how can I trust him when I, I either have to be all in on the trust game or all out? Whereas confidence, you know, I can have a fair degree of confidence in Don. I know him a little bit, you know, he's a pretty good guy. So these things I will do uh, with him, but this other thing, I'm not going to, you know, give him a million dollars to invest for him, for me. Right. And so whatever those things are. Uh, so, so I think it, it's a measure is trying to talk about confidence. And I think it's also a way for people to acquiesce to a reality that they just don't have any control over. Right. So they just say they trust something. Well, yeah, I trust that driver not to run into my car uh, while I'm on the freeway. Well, you don't really, uh, but you don't have any control over that situation. And if you want to, you know, go to the grocery store or to a movie, you have to get in your car and you have to drive somewhere. Right. Or even if it was public transportation, I trust that that pilot or I or that uh, train driver or bus driver to do the right thing. They're well trained. Well, we have no idea. Right. When you get on a plane, you don't know the pilot. You have no idea. You put your life in their hands. And we've seen in the past that be betrayed. Right. There have been pilots who have specifically crashed their planes because they went bonkers and, and decided they wanted to kill their passengers. So trust is a the history of trust is a is a history of missteps. And certainly in cybersecurity, it's something we don't need. It's kind of um, something we have to have in human interaction. You know, I think it's Malcolm McDowell who talks about human beings as trust engines. I think that's how he, call, he calls it. And, and, yeah, that's kind of true in human life. But we can't continuously anthropomorphize the digital world uh, to try to make it align with our human life. It just doesn't work. They're two separate worlds. And so I'm never saying that people aren't trustworthy. That's not what zero trust is about. Zero trust is about people aren't packets. Quit anthropomorphizing the digital world. It doesn't work. And, uh, and, and understand how digital systems work, and then the digital system will tell you how it needs to be secured. So in many ways, you're really saying that we've anthropomorphized the digital world to essentially equivalize trust as faith that the users aren't going to do something they're not supposed to do. And since we have no control directly over the users, we need to stop that connection and really start thinking about uh, authenticating and authorizing access to resources that users should only have access to. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not just identity and access control. It's also looking at the whole packet, understanding how it's working and understanding the many layers of TCP IP and the network stacks and all of the things that happen in the digital realm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what are your thoughts on the NIST standard that came out just about 10 months ago, 800.207? So it's not a standard, first of all. I mean, this is the misunderstanding, and if you read the charter for NIST, you would realize that NIST is not a standards body. They don't create standards. When you go there and talk to them, they say, we are aggressively non-regulatory. So just the fact that we, by convention, call it a NIST standard is a terrible thing. 
It's not a standards body. There are no standards in cybersecurity. The only standards come from IETF and, and maybe some IEEE things, but certainly NIST is a is a an advisory uh, engine for the U.S. federal government, and it's not a standards body. The, there's a law called FISMA that essentially says that U.S. federal government civilian agencies have to do what NIST says. They have to meet these NIST uh, guidelines, so they're gu- it's guidance documents, but it's not a standard, and we shouldn't have standards in cybersecurity. Standards always inhibit innovation. I am profoundly anti-standards. Uh, we see it, we have always seen standards inhibit innovation because there's always some stakeholder that wants the standard to align to whatever they do from a vendor product perspective to keep competition out. And we no longer need standards because we have APIs. APIs are the magic, I don't know, pixie dust of cybersecurity that you can do so much with. So we don't need standards. So that's the first rant. It's not a standard. 800-207 is, in my opinion, a little bit too identity-focused, misunderstanding of zero trust. But even Ron Ross, one of the co-authors of that, has gone on publicly with me and said, hey, you know, zero trust is a strategy. This is one way you might get there. And now you've seen uh, CISA, CISA come out, and it's much more aligned to the original authentic zero trust that started at Forrester and went through the whole Palo Alto days, and I still do today. DISA, much more aligned to that. NSA, much more aligned to that. So there's lots of people talking about it, and a lot of people spin it to meet you know, certain biases or certain products that they want to use or certain products that they want to sell. So the productization of zero trust is problematic. So I always say there's no zero trust products that are products that work well in zero trust. So zero trust is a strategy and a framework, and then it is decoupled from the technology. And that's what people need to understand. But they want it, you know, there's a certain group of people who want it to be told exactly what to do. And that just doesn't work. It hasn't worked in the past. It will never work in the future. So while I appreciate the work that NIST did, I'm also thankful that they're backing off on that because even in 800-207, the identity paradigm, let's call it, that they kind of articulate and seem to endorse is pretty old school compared to where identity is going to go in the future. So if you did that, you would be stuck in a very old paradigm and not able to innovate along even the path of one technology dimension, which is identity management. Gotcha. Yeah, very very interesting perspective. I mean, it is interesting to see how many executives do get stuck on any kind of CIS or NIST or or any of the other organizations that are really not truly standards as gospel in a way and saying that my organization must follow these rules and they refer them to them as rules when, to your point, they are very much just guidance. They're stepping stones along the path. They're guideposts on an organization on how they should be looking at things or potentially approaching their security situations. Yeah, and I guess that's just human nature right? People want to be told what to do and they don't want to have to think through it themselves. But that will always lead to failure because you can't commoditize cybersecurity. 
You can't say here, you know, this is why I've never come out with a reference architecture for zero trust because zero trust, each zero trust environment is tailor made for the thing you're trying to protect. So I can't give you a reference architecture like we had in the old days of networking where it was pretty generic and all you had to do was change the IP addresses and it would generally work because that was just packet flow. That was just wiring and plumbing. Now that we have security, well, you have to know a lot about the thing you're protecting in order to properly protect it, right? And so each protection detail, to use human terms, is different, right? If you're protecting the president of the United States, you have to know about the White House and how it all works versus if you're protecting the president of France. They're not the same paradigm. So you have to understand what you're protecting. And so zero trust is very protect surface oriented. That's my term for shrinking down the attack surface into something very, very small and very manageable that contains just a single what's called a DAS element. DAS is an acronym I created to help you understand what goes into protect surfaces. So uh, it stands for data, like credit card data or healthcare data. It stands for applications. The other A is assets, and then the S is services, like DNS, DHCP, Active Directory, Network Time Protocol. So you take a single DAS element, put it in a single protect surface, and build your zero trust environment around that, and the controls will be specific to the, the type of DAS element that you're protecting, and then the place where that DAS element resides. So I can't be so generic as people want it to be, right? That kind of begs the question, how should an organization just kind of start their journey on to, into the zero trust? I mean, with your statement around architectures being very industry or customer-specific and organization-specific, and that's been my experience in the past, what do you think the first steps an organization should start taking to, to jump into Zero Trust? Well, that's why I created the five-step model. There's five steps that you take that will always work. So I don't have a reference architecture. I have a five-step model. And if you use that five-step model, at least so far, it's always worked for me. And I've done more work in this area than anybody else in the world. So the first thing you do is define the protect surface, figure out what you need to protect. The second thing you do is you map the transaction flows. You figure out how that protect surface interacts with your systems. How does it work together as a system? And out of that transaction flow mapping, you will understand where you need to put the various types of controls in the system based upon the policy you want to create. So that's when you do the architecture. That's where you put the products in is step three. And then step four is creating the policy because ultimately zero trust is a layer seven policy statement. I just need the layer seven controls to enforce it. And I say layer seven because we're getting to this point where a lot of people are going back to really old school 20th century paradigms of layer three ACLs that are even stateless or proxies and saying that's good enough. And it's not. Every attacker knows how to bypass these controls. So you have to be able to see the entire packet, which is what we call layer seven. But oddly enough, I talk to a lot of people who don't know what the OSI model is. And so it seems like there was an educational flaw somewhere down the line where people didn't really learn how the system worked. And that's becoming problematic over time. And a lot of people are saying this is good enough. Well, it's good enough for you because you can't figure out how to get through it. But 
you know, the nation state attackers. No, nah, it's trivial for them. So the fourth step is policy. And then the fifth step is, step is monitor and maintain. Get all that telemetry so that you can re-inject it back into the system and make everything stronger. It's a concept known as anti-fragility. Have you ever read the book Anti-Fragile by Taleb? Familiar no, with that? I haven't. Well, he, he came up with a, a number of years ago, but not that long ago, a concept of anti-fragility. Uh, he uses the human body as an example. You know, if, if say, uh, you work out, you, you lift weights. Uh, well, that puts an incredible stress on your body, but your, stre- your body adapts and recovers to the stress and becomes stronger. So his claim would be we look at things that either fragile or robust, but there's anti-fragile systems in between those two things. And so you can make a fragile system more robust by by loading it, which is counterintuitive, giving it more stressors. And uh, so he applies that to financial markets. And he gave me the vocabulary to talk about what I'm doing in Zero Trust, which is creating an anti-fragile system. Interesting perspective. I can definitely see how continuing to test something from the outside from multiple angles can definitely help you build up your strength. That's that's an interesting concept. Considering that, you know, every approach to zero trust is unique to an organization, how does it change from from industry to industry? For example, banking versus pharma versus manufacturing. The only thing that changes are the protect surfaces. I joke that the world is flat because TCPIP made it flat. You know, the networks all look almost exactly like, you know that, and I know that, right? So everybody thinks that they're unique and special, but they're not because the infrastructure that they're riding on is very similar. And that doesn't matter whether it's on-premise or going to a cloud or whatever. There's still a network. There's still routers and switches. There's still basic TCP IP things. And so I have different ways that I have a tell the narrative for different verticals, but the only thing that changes is the DAS element in in there, right? So the intellectual property from a pharmaceutical company would be different from the intellectual property that an airplane manufacturer has, but you would secure it in the same way. And what do you think the business challenges for those identification mechanisms are in the different industries? I mean, my experience has been that many organizations don't know what that's connected to their network, don't understand their application flows, don't necessarily know where their sensitive data even lies within the organization. Well, Zero Trust gives them a strategic reason to figure those things out. So it's a it's a benefit to them. It helps them with that digital transformation project. It helps them with that data project. I mean, we're getting to the world where where you have to know everything that you have, because how are you going to stop ransomware? You might find out that you had important data somewhere only because it got ransomed, right? And so, oh, hey, the ransomware as a as a, a data discovery tool. Yeah, whoops. <laughs> yeah. So we're at the place where you can't just not pay attention to that stuff anymore. I mean, people do not pay attention to it because it's hard. And people say, I don't want to do that. It's too hard. And, you know, I remember something Dan Kaminsky said, he chiding people for saying, oh, that's a hard problem. He said, don't complain about the hard problems. In our industry, we worship hard. By that, he meant we worship the hard things. If you weren't willing to take on hard challenges, you shouldn't be in this industry. There's a whole lot of easier businesses 
to be in. Cybersecurity, Dan Gear says cybersecurity is the most intellectually challenging business on the planet. Maybe you could make an argument against that, but it is a very complex industry, and, and it's also adversarial. There's very few other industries that are adversarial. The other things that are adversarial are law enforcement and the military and cybersecurity, and that's it. So, you know, manufacturing breakfast cereals, you have competitors, not adversaries. Cybersecurity, you have competitors and adversaries at the same time. So it's a whole different game changer in our world. And what we do is phenomenally important to the safety of the world. We can see that when systems go down. We can see that when data breaches happen and damages somebody's credit rating or, you know, somebody steals their identity. And I hate it when people talk about breach fatigue. Oh, yeah, that's not a very big breach. That's only two million records. Yeah, but behind every record is a human being. And we need to, say, de-anthropomorphize that and take that stuff seriously. Those are real human beings who are damaged and and go through an enormous amount of inconvenience, even if ultimately that part of it is recoverable. Yeah, considering that it is a hard challenge to solve, what do you think the the stopping blocks are from many board of directors and, and executive leadership from really kind of doubling down and, and addressing the concerns? Well, I mean, a lot of times they haven't been educated, told the truth about how things stand. You know, a big data breach is often just a it's a shock to them. They had no idea bad things were going on. I, I have said this many times that CISOs need to be reporting directly to the CEO. So it's an unfiltered view and they need to be encouraged to tell the truth because I've seen things where there were really bad things going on. But no, we can't let the CEO know. Right. Well, no, they should know about the bad stuff because you don't want them blindsided. So having a culture of truthfulness, having a culture of you won't get fired for telling the truth, those would be helpful. Having an incentivization around a strategy, that's I just got a call yesterday. I'm going to be presenting to a, a board of a big public company because they now want to, to know, have at least some introduction to these kinds of ideas. They want to have some cybersecurity resources available to them. So I am very hopeful and optimistic that there's changes afoot. And then we're starting to see more money being focused on it. You know, cybersecurity used to be seen as a business inhibitor, and now it's being seen as a business enabler. I was on a call with a CISO recently who just got a new CFO, and the CFO called him to the office and he thought he was going to get chewed out, which he did. He got chewed out for not spending enough money on cybersecurity. It wasn't really a chewing out because he knew that the predecessor CFO didn't give enough budget, but it was like, you aren't spending enough money and I need to give you more money because there's no way you can adequately secure our organization with the little bit of money that we give you. And it's hard to know exactly what percentage of money from the overall IT budget gets allocated to cybersecurity. But in the numbers I've seen, it's generally less than 10%. And that's just too low. I mean, cybersecurity is the most important part of IT, I would say. And it's not understood and and it's not something that it makes the business work, right? Oh, our ERP system, that makes the business flow. 
Well, but if your ERP system is down because of a cybersecurity incident, you know, all that money, it wasn't useful to spend. Considering what's been happening in the legal realm of going after CISOs for non-disclosure and things like that, I, I certainly see how the buck should stop there. But what about in the cases when there are boards of directors or people in the under, in the organization that are essentially preventing an organization from what they believe is doing the right thing? Or what if they are doing what they believe is the right thing and it still happens? Well, bad things are going to happen. So you kind of have to take that into account. You're trying to minimize the effect of that. You, you're never going to get to a place where no bad things ever happen. But the bad things might happen to things that aren't as important. So that's why we talk about focusing our zero trust efforts around high value assets and finding things that are really critical. And a lot of times people spend a lot of time protecting the wrong thing, a lot of time and money protecting the wrong thing. I, I was talking to a CEO who said to me, he was recounting a story about how accidentally his team discovered that some cyber criminals were stealing their source code. And so he asked the security people, well, how could this be possible? Aren't we protecting the source code? And they said, well, no, you don't protect that. that we're not in charge of that. You know, we're supposed to be protecting endpoints, right? We have great antivirus on our endpoints. And he said, but don't you understand that, that this is how we make all of our money? 100% of our revenue comes from this source code? No, they didn't understand that. Right. And I did this research when I was at Forrester looking at alignment between IT and business leaders and what was important. And I had them stack rank things and the business leaders, you know, their top three priorities were increasing revenue, increasing profitability and stopping data exfiltration. Well, those were the bottom three priorities of IT leaders. They were like AV catch rates and my sim and, you know, the, the tactical stuff. And they didn't really care about how the company made money and whether the, the money, either, you know, whether it was profitable. And it, they certainly didn't care about data exfiltration. They cared about the old school stuff. And, and I was just telling somebody the other day, why is there such a move to the edge again? Why do we want to talk about the edge, the edge, the edge, antivirus, or these new endpoint agents? It's because we're predisposed to look at cybersecurity from an edge perspective because that was the first set of technologies, antivirus. You put them on the laptop. But the laptop doesn't typically contain sensitive data anymore. You used to, but so many were stolen and lost and so many big data breaches occurred that way that most people know don't store that, certainly don't store it unencrypted. But the other thing is venture capital firms love endpoints because there's a one-to-one -one relationship between selling an endpoint and revenue generated. And it's much harder to calculate what is the value of a company when you can't say you've sold a million endpoints at $1 a piece, that's a million dollars, right? The math is easier. And so that's why I think there's just this overabundance of, of endpoints when the, the DAS elements, the things that we really need to protect are generally not on the endpoint. Do you think it's also easier to address the endpoint than oh, sure. where the means, data yeah, I mean, it's simple, right? So I'm not going to, you know, people all the time say, uh, I'm not going to put any effort into this. I don't care. It's just a job. And if you have that perspective, then that's going to be the failing. 
this is a world that demands passion. It needs passionate people who care about the mission of protecting other people at the cyber level. That makes a lot of sense. Considering that we're going full circle back to endpoint protection rather than actually going after data sources and applications and where do you see the market vendor landscape kind of changing? How do you see it changing over the next few years? Do you think we're going to go back to a more data-centric model? Yeah, we are going back to a data-centric model. How could you not? And even the endpoint stuff and, and the edge stuff, the sassy stuff is all playing into a trying to trying to play into a data-centric model. You know, we're going to have to come up with new ways to do data classification and understand data and new ways to do data encryption and new ways to understand how data is valued. And that's that's the future because it's all about data. At the end of the day, it's all about data. Everything is data. Everything is a binary data string. It's zeros and ones as represented by electrons and photons. That's our entire world, right? So in some ways, it's a very simple world, but we have to be cognizant of that, I think. What kind of gaps do you see in the, the tooling end of things right now? Oh, there's not as much. I mean, I don't see major gaps in the tooling. Uh, you know, I'd like to see data classification get a lot easier, data discovery. Those kinds of things could be easier, could be more automated. But, you know, automation tools are getting better and better. Really, the gap is the willingness to do this, right? People say, where is Zero Trust going to go in five or 10 years? I don't know, but Zero Trust needs to be deployed more ubiquitously. We, we don't need to change things. We need to do it first, and then maybe we can figure out what, what the gaps are. But a lot of people are trying to f ask similar questions. Well, I want to wait till it's perfect. Well, if you wait till something is perfect, you will never do something, right? So, what is the first step in zero trust? Do anything. Just do one thing. And I, I, I've often said that my role in this whole thing is to just get the ball rolling a little bit, right? It, it's basic physics. A body in motion will tend to stay in motion. A body at rest tends to stay at rest. And so a lot of places are stuck in inertia. And if I can just get them moving a little bit, then they can go, oh. In fact, it's it's common that some of the biggest critics of zero trust, once they start moving and doing it, become the biggest champions. And that's been an enjoyable thing because when I do workshops and stuff, I can often see somebody's, the light just turn on in their eyes. They suddenly get it and now they're enthusiastic and they see how it's going to transform their world and their, their company and, and make their life easier over time. And so that's an exciting thing, a very gratifying thing. Yeah, you can't know if you're doing the right thing if you haven't started the journey yet. And you don't know how to course correct unless you're on that journey already. Yeah. It's very difficult, to your point, around inertia to sometimes get networking folks to think about security and to get security folks thinking about networking and get them past that initial step of working together and putting the practice of zero trust in, into play in their organization. Yeah, absolutely. And and the silos don't help. I think we should be thinking about secure networking, not networking and security. And one, one person said, I can't tell whether 
zero trust is networking done by a security guy or security done by a networking guy. And I said to him, yes, because he didn't know I was the person behind it. And I was lucky. I had both backgrounds and they, they played into each other. And I didn't see that there should be a difference. It's the same packet on the same uh, wire or the same fiber optic cable or the same air. And so why do we think of these things as being different? Why do we have these legacy silos? Why aren't we just doing secure networking? That's what Zero Trust is all about. Absolutely. And then the application end of things comes into play as well. You need really get the application folks to understand that security is something that needs to be baked in from the beginning. And uh, they need to work with security. They need to work with networking. They need to work with the rest of the infrastructure organization to make sure that they are deploying and and building secure applications from end to end. Yeah, absolutely. And th- and that can be hard. So you want them to not have to worry so much about that because you can take care of it in, as a system. Because you're never going to get rid of every single vulnerability in an app. I, I remember talking to somebody saying, well, we'll get rid of all the vulnerabilities. No, you won't because something that is secure today could be a vulnerability tomorrow because of advancements in other things, hacking techniques and such. And when you look at something, you you might say, oh, there's no vulnerabilities. And when somebody else looks at it, they might go, oh, I see that vulnerability. So there's a whole perspective thing there. So it's very hard to ever, you know, I remember years and years ago, there was some legislation to outlaw vulnerabilities. And, and it didn't make it even into committee, I don't think. But it was sort of a very funny thing because somebody who, uh, you know, just heard, well, there's vulnerabilities in software. Well, we'll just make those illegal. Yeah, that's not how it works. It's not ever going to work, right? You want to diminish that as much as possible. And the more automation you have, the more you can do that. But there's things cropping up that are vulnerabilities because they were done 30 years ago and they weren't vulnerabilities back then. Think of all of these things inside the Intel chipset, right? No one ever thought those would be vulnerabilities, but somebody figured out there were ways to exploit them. And so they became vulnerabilities. Absolutely. I've heard it many times, and I'm sure you have as well, that the most vulnerable person or the most vulnerable thing on the network is are the people, and it's not the applications and the infrastructure. Well, yeah. and But at the same time, I'm not about blaming the people for those things. You know, that's why we're very specific in the rules we create in Zero Trust. Very, very granular because we make it difficult for them to go past the guardrails and make the kind of mistakes that then they would get blamed for. So the trust model actually encourages those things because they don't know where the boundaries are. And uh, you, you see that all the time. You know, I think it was the 2008 election uh, where several people uh, in the government who had access to the passport records of the candidates looked at them and they said they did it out of curiosity, but they violated federal law and they ended up in prison. Well, if we had rules that said, do you need to have access to those records? No, you don't. Well, then there's no way you're going to get access to those records because there is no rule attached to your identity that allows you to get access to that record. And so we could keep those people out of prison because what they were doing was arguably not malicious. You know, curiosity is is a is a thing that gets people into a lot of problem trouble, too. And sometimes curiosity leads to other things. I'm poking around. I see this thing. Now I want to become a whistleblower like Manning or Snowden. So 
you could argue the morality of all those things all day long, but from a technology perspective, there needs to be a policy that determines least privilege, allow rules that's inspected up at layer seven, and that's what Zero Trust does. So is there one piece of knowledge or, or information or advice that you could give an executive or other security professionals out there? What would you tell them? I would tell them you need a cybersecurity strategy, and right now Zero Trust is the world's only cybersecurity strategy. Everything else is a set of tactics. And so start thinking strategically. That's what I would tell them. And that will transform your world. And you can still use all the tactical elements that you're comfortable with, but you will use them in a different way. You will use them in a strategic way. Think strategically always. Awesome. Any closing thoughts? No, it's just gratifying, A, to talk to you again, Don, and to uh, and that you would want me to have be on your, your podcast here. And it's just gratifying the adoption of Zero Trust in the world and how people are talking about it. And, and so the more we can all come together as a movement, the more we can change things for the better. And, and I just, again, be passionate about cybersecurity. It is a, it is a great gig, but it is a gig that can make you feel good about what you did today because every day that you're in this business you are actually making the world a little bit safer and it is those tiny incremental improvements that are going to make the long-term benefit uh, for our industry awesome thanks very much john and uh, looking forward to what you do in the future and i'm sure everybody else is out there as well hey thanks don listening to this episode of demystifying zero trust we hope you found the content both interesting and insightful subscribe to this podcast to continue to explore why and how organizations should adopt zero trust